hppodcraft.com. The place stank. A queer, mingled stench that only the ice-buried cabins of an Antarctic camp know, compounded of reeking human sweat and the heavy fish oil stench of melted seal blubber. An overtone of liniment combated the musty smell of sweat and snow-drenched furs, the acrid odor of burnt cooking fat, and the animal, not unpleasant smell of dogs, diluted by time, hung in the air. Lingering odors of machine oil contrasted sharply with the taint of harness dressing and leather. Yet somehow, through all that reek of human beings and their associates, dogs, machines, and cooking, came another taint. It was a queer, neck-ruffling thing, the faintest suggestion of an odor alien among the smells of industry and life. And it was a life smell. But it came from the thing that lay bound with cord and tarpaulin on the table, dripping slowly, methodically, onto the heavy planks, dank and gaunt under the unshielded glare of the electric light. Chad, was that a description of our old apartment? <laughs> what? Are you going to get on me about all that melted seal blubber again? Yeah. Look, man, it was the 1990s. People were into retro stuff. We were <laughs> swing dancing. We were using the oil lamps of indigenous Arctic peoples. It was a crazy time. I know. I needed to melt that blubber. Yeah. And I'm gonna. I'm, you know, I'm still going to pay you back for ruining your pots and pans and mm. getting into your seal supply. Been 20 years, Pfeiffer. <laughs> the checks in the mail. What the heck are we reading today? We are reading Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, the story that inspired The Thing, one of my all-time favorite horror films, and we are reading it on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are broadcasting from our respective ice-buried cabins over the wireless internet at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. By the way, you know how people don't like the word moist? People hate that word. Yeah. I don't ever want to hear the phrase life smell again. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually like the perfect description of, um, you know, when you're getting off of a plane after a long flight yeah. and you walk through the layers of bad breath and yeah. baby emissions and whatever mm-hmm. demoniacal funk was suddenly freed when everybody got up from their seats at once. <laughs> That's to me what life smell is. And I, I don't like it and I don't, I don't want to hear it again. <laughs> Agreed. But you know what I do like hearing? Our reader today. Oh, my God. Listen closely. It is none other than the magical Andrew Lehman. Yes, these are our holiday shows. We're not going to release any of those Lovecraft Christmas poems that Andrew reads this year. This two-part episode is your gift, the snowy, scary story. But we could not celebrate the solstice season without good old St. Andrew. If you haven't heard yet, over at CthulhuLives.org, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society has just released their Dark Adventure Radio Theater production of The Rats in the Walls. That's right. You can download it as an MP3 or order the Always Magnificent CD version, complete with collectible, incredible prop documents, as always. Get it? The Rats in the Walls. They've also recently released The Haunter of the Dark mm-hmm. from Dark Adventure Radio Theater, as well as an adaptation of a Poe story, The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar. That story we covered. We did, yeah. Lots of great stocking stuffers over there, as well as the holiday-themed Solstice Carol albums, which you must get if you don't already have them. Perfect for this time of year. They even sell uh, seal blubber. What? So you don't have to melt it at home anymore. Go straight <laughs> to CthulhuLives.org. Get your radio shows and your blubber. <laughs> that's, that's not true at all. Chan, as you know, this story was picked out by one of our backers for our 2017 Providence appearance, Benjamin Auerbach. Thank you so much for picking the story. It's something we've been meaning to do for quite some time, so I'm excited to start talking about it right now. Who goes there? We've definitely discussed it a few times, Mm -hmm. especially when we covered At the Mountains of Madness by Lovecraft. His story was published in 1936 in Astounding Stories after Farnsworth 
Wright from Weird Tales rejected it. Who Goes There was published in the same magazine. At that point, it was then called Astounding Science Fiction Mm -hmm. in 1938. So just a couple of years later. And uh, Campbell wrote it under the pseudonym Don A. Stewart, which I guess he used for a lot of stuff. It's possible, maybe even likely, that Campbell was influenced by Lovecraft's story. In my research, there was no direct evidence of him mentioning it. No. And also, it wasn't uncommon to set stories in the Arctic at that time, or rather the Antarctic, Mm -hmm. where both stories are set. There are similarities between the two pieces, but also some huge differences, obviously. Yeah. I think Lovecraft's story certainly informed the adaptations of this story. Right. And, uh, you know, one is rarely mentioned without a reference to the other. So, but but, but what do we know about this author? Well, John W. Campbell, we've never covered his work before, but he's a big deal in the gold golden age of science fiction. Uh, He was an editor of Astounding Science Fiction from 1937 until his death in 1971. In that time, he changed it to Analog Science Fiction and Fact, which is how I always knew the magazine Mm -hmm. as Analog. It is said by more than a few people that his editorial eye shaped the whole of the sci-fi genre. Isaac Eisboff said that Campbell was the most powerful force in science fiction ever. Wow. And for the first 10 years of his editorship, he dominated the field completely. Yeah, he's really known for being an editor, not necessarily as a writer. This story is the the one exception. For better or worse, he also launched the career of L. Ron Hubbard. (laughs) Yeah, and not just... Hubbard science fiction stories either. Mm. Campbell kind of pushed Dianetics in the 1950s, and it did put off some writers for the magazine. There's accounts of people saying he's way too into this yeah. Dianetics stuff, and he was interested in all sorts of pseudoscientific and paranormal stuff throughout his life, as well as hard science, although that certainly didn't define him. No, no. Uh, Campbell was from uh, Newark, New Jersey. He spent most of his life in New Jersey, and he started writing sci-fi when he was 18 years old and got published in Amazing Magazine, which published six of his short stories, one of his novels, and a bunch of letters by the time he was 21 years old. He got his bachelor's degree in physics from Duke University, but he also attended MIT. As an editor, he was super keen on hard science fiction. Uh, There's a story called Deadline that was written by Khalif Cartmel. In it, the construction of an atomic bomb is described in detail. But a lot of the facts were wrong, so Campbell worked with Carmel, read a bunch of scientific papers, and made as accurate a description as possible. And uh, this was a year before the actual atomic bomb was dropped. Uh, Mm. The story came out, and the FBI showed up on the doorstep and demanded that they retract the story. But Campbell argued that if they did, he said, the FBI would be advertising to everyone that such a project existed and was aimed at developing nuclear weapons. And the FBI agreed and let the story be published. Campbell died in 1971, as you said, at the age of uh, 61, after 34 years at the helm of Analog. The story Who Goes There was adapted into film twice, once in 1951, and the movie was called The Thing from Another World, and then again in 1982, which was The Thing. Well, actually, it was adapted three times because there's the one from 2011. Oh, right, but that's not really an adaptation of the story. That's a prequel. Well, it is, actually, in some ways. It's a prequel to the Carpenter movie, but it does also adapt aspects of this story that Carpenter didn't, such as them finding the saucer, etc. Oh. You could say there's three big budget movie adaptations. Look, the 1982 film is the definitive one for me. Yeah, it's I've seen it so many times that I can't even begin to count. Um, mm-hmm. But the 1951 movie, I think I saw it once and I just didn't care much for it. You know, for some reason, I watched the 50s movie a lot when I was younger. I had a VHS copy of it uh, dubbed, but I don't know where I got it from. I just I think it's a great film for a number of reasons. But of course, the John Carpenter movie is uh, closer to this, right? Yeah, I was surprised how faithful the 1982 film adapted the story. Like, I just couldn't believe it. The names, the locations, actually, a lot of the same beats are in there. Mm-hmm. But the 1951 really misses the point of the story, I feel. <laughs> we should talk about that afterwards, though. Yeah, it does. Well, I think that movie does some cool things, but you're right. We should table that discussion or interweave it because we're here to talk about this actual story. Exactly. Before we jump into it, I do want to say one thing about the Carpenter movie, though. Just get it out at the top. Sure. 
You remember for a while, it was like kind of cute to say that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Sure. You go, oh, <laughs> you're my favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard, right? That's <laughs> it's not a cute thing to say anymore. Uh, everybody accepts that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. You're not being edgy by saying it. It's on all the lists now. The movie you got to pitch as a Christmas movie is The Thing. Okay. It's got the snowy exteriors. Here's how you do it. When you have your big holiday party, okay. gather all the children and the extended family around the TV. Say, I'm going to show you something. It's kind, of, it's kind of like Frozen. So they'll get into it. And then you show them The Thing and, you know, spike the eggnog if they're getting restless. Do what you got to do. Sure. But keep them in front of the TV. Make them watch it all. The dog's dying. <laughs> the decapitated head crawling around. The super downer ending. Oh. And then when it's over and they're crying and everything, say, hey, there's a part you didn't see. After the end of the movie, Santa Claus comes and he rescues those guys. That's right. Santa Claus is real. <laughs> We're just not sure if he's really Santa Claus anymore. <laughs> and then, boom, you've just made Christmas super exciting for all of those kids. Oh, <laughs> They won't be able to sleep all Christmas Eve. They'll be in such suspense. And that's why I think that's my pitch. The Thing is the new edgy Christmas movie. When I was reading this story, it's really cold here in Yorkshire right now. And mm-hmm. we had snow. And so I was by myself freezing my butt off. And I was reading the story and feeling really cold. And it really... Got me in the mood. Oh, that sounds great. Everything in this city's on fire right now. So that actually oh, sounds no. <laughs> really nice. But let's get into it. Let's get, let's go ahead and jump into the story. So the story starts off in a camp in Antarctica. There's something frozen in ice in the camp with all the men standing around it. When uh, we were first introduced to Blair, who is the biologist of the camp, played by Wilford Brimley in the movie. Yes. The guy in charge of the whole camp is named Gary. And Gary is his last name, not yeah. Gary is his first name. His last name is right. G-A-R-R-Y. When I kept reading Commander Gary, it, it kind of made me laugh a bit. <laughs> well, he could just be really friendly. Like, guys, it's Commander Gary. <laughs> Come on. Uh, uh, but the camp has 37 men. That is everybody. And they're all there at this uh, meeting. And there's right in the opening here, opening few paragraphs, there's a lot of underwear talk. It says Blair's bird-like motions of suppressed eagerness danced his shadow across the fringe of dingy gray underwear hanging from the low ceiling. And then it says, Commander Gary brushed aside the lax legs of a suit of underwear and stepped toward the table. And I felt like Commander Gary was going to say, men, there's a lot of underwear hanging around here. A little too much underwear. I'm going to administer a test and we'll discover which of you isn't wearing their underwear. Commander Gary then turns the room over to this guy, McCready. Uh, We discover McCready, second in command of the operation who was played by the greatest actor of all time, Kurt Russell. Yep. He was over at a, a secondary campsite with Blair, the biologist, and Dr. Copper, the physician of the camp, and this guy, Norris. Mm. McReady stands up. He's going to tell everybody what the hell's going on and why they've all been called together. In the story, McReady is huge. He's 6'4", with bronzed skin. Yeah. And for some reason, Campbell loves talking about <laughs> his bronze skin. He brings it up all the time. Moving from the smoke-blued background, McCready was a figure from some forgotten myth, a looming bronze statue that held <laughs> life and walked. And it's not just a skin either. It says he was bronze, his great red bronze beard, the heavy hair that matched it. Even the sunken eyes beneath heavy brows were bronze. <laughs> And they don't include it in the movie, but actually, it goes on. McReady actually has a pair of bronze baby shoes instead of a right hand. That's how bronze he is. That's weird. This block of ice actually contains a creature from another planet. Right. And that sets up the initial conflict right away. It says, Norris fears there may be danger in that. Blair says there is none. So since this involves everybody at camp, McReady lays out 
okay, here's how we came into possession of this thing in the ice. So they were checking out the magnetic south pole, but then they noticed another secondary magnetic signal and they wanted to check out what this other huge magnetic signal was. Yeah, the whole group is there to study the magnetic pole that their base is on, but there shouldn't have been this other weird magnetic field. And so the secondary magnetic expedition went out to investigate. Frozen in ice, they found a spaceship. By how deep it is in the ice, they figured that the thing has been there for nearly 20 million years. Wow. The ship is described as a submarine without a conning tower or directive vanes, 280 feet long and 45 feet in diameter at its thickest. As far as they can figure, it got too close to the Earth's magnetic pole, and then it got pulled in and it crashed into a granite cliffside. There's some science-y stuff here about wind temperatures and whatnot, and um, the 1951 adaptation actually indulges in some of that, long discussions about how the ship might have got there, uh, planetary forces. But really, this is about it for the story. The writing, I wouldn't say, is phenomenal in the no, story, it's but it's not. very serviceable. The, you know, I will say, though, there's none of that long-winded technical Mountains of Madness stuff from, no. you know. No. About what supplies they have and the planes and the dogs and all that. Campbell knows I've got to engage the reader with action and conflict and I've got to do that right away. Yeah. And he, he does deliver that. But you're but you're right. He is not very clear in a lot of things. There's many times that I don't know where people are or mm-hmm. who's actually talking. Yeah, that's his biggest problem is the dialogue. You get wait wait a minute, who's talking and, yeah. and how long have they been speaking? And, and, yeah, and who's exactly. in the room with them? Like you don't even know who's there and then everybody's got a name and some people with names they're explained who they are, but other people you just get a name and you don't know. Right. It gets a little overwhelming, but it's still a very effective story. Yeah. He says that after the crash, one of the creatures got out, walked about ten feet, and then froze. That's what they suppose happened, yeah. Antarctica can be deadly, and if the wind is kicking up, you can get lost after walking a few feet. They bring up the cook, Kinner, who five days ago went out to get some frozen beef, and then the wind kicked up, and he got lost for about a half an hour before he was found. Which is terrifying. Yeah. And I think serves two purposes right away. One is to establish how the thing froze so quickly and so perfectly. Could even happen now, they're saying. The other is to establish the house for the human characters. And, and yeah, I've talked a little before about Blake Snyder's Save the Cat screenwriting books. A yeah. lot of people think they're hacky, but they establish 10 basic story archetypes. And one of them is monster in the house. And I think this right. is like this typifies it. Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory. Most horror fits into that genre. It's the environment of the characters is at least as important as the monster because it has to be an environment not easily escaped that pits yeah. them directly against the monster. So you've got Camp Crystal Lake or the spaceship in Alien or the boat in Jaws, even the city of Tokyo for dealing with a Godzilla situation. Yeah. Here, the environment is just as dangerous as the creature, which is why this is such a unique and perfect setting. It's on Earth, but it's a lot like outer space. Right. Also, in the monster in the house genre, there's a third ingredient that's important, and it's sin. Like, not necessarily biblical sin, but some transgression that the characters are going to get punished for. You know, mm-hmm. in Friday the 13th, it's drugs and sex, and Jaws, it's it's greed. Right. By the way, I read my favorite tweet ever the other day by Adam Goodell that said, uh, the mayor from Jaws is still the mayor in Jaws 2. It's so important to vote in your local elections. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Despite letting those people die, the mayor still gets reelected. Anyhow, we'll see what kind of sin these characters commit. Back to McCready's uh, exposition. They dug down to the ship and found this frozen creature. Barkley's ice axe went right into the thing's skull. Something about this made Barkley sick for three days after he hit the creature. I love that. Right away, I was already thinking, was that the first infection? Mm-hmm. Even there? Maybe. But I think it actually might be because of the thing's mind powers. It got hit in the head and was like, ah! Yeah, and, yeah. And Barclay felt it. They cut out the block that the creature was in, and then they moved it to the tractor. And they dug deeper to the side of the ship. The surface was impenetrable. None of the tools worked on it, not even a scratch. 
And here's where they make the, you know, they made the same mistake that they made in the 50s movie. They thought they would try some thermite to loosen the ice around the ship, but it didn't work out as planned. The hull of the ship was some kind of magnesium metal, and when the thermite went off, it set up the whole ship into a big, blazing hot mess. They just eradicated the whole thing. And yeah. I here, here we find the first aspects of sin, their impulsiveness and their impatience. Some of the worst traits of humanity, I think. Right. And McCready says, we had never seen metal like this before, but we know how metal works in general, so the thermite won't harm it, I'm sure. Right? That's what their line of reasoning yeah. was. But, you know, I feel like once they found this ship, they should have marked it. It's not going anywhere. It's been there for 20 million years. And yeah. then organized an entirely separate expedition of archaeologists and mm-hmm. scientists who know about this stuff, who could remove it carefully. Yep. But instead, they blew it all to hell. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of really bad decisions in this. It says, secrets going in blazing glory, secrets that might have given man the planets, mysterious things that could lift and hurl that ship and had soaked in the force of Earth's magnetic field, all gone. All lost. The explosion fused all of their electronics and even made their buttons so hot that they burned them. Ouch. But Van Wall, the pilot, flew in to pick them up. Yeah, and I think McCready had to drag the thing in ice all the way back to base on that tractor. So now we're all up to speed. As a kid watching that 50s movie, I was really angry with them for blowing the ship up. I remember that because they <laughs> they did add this element of a ticking clock. The weather was going to change rapidly and they were worried about losing the location or some crap like that. But I was screaming at the TV, don't blow that up, you idiots. Why are you doing that? Why are you using bombs to get it out of the ice? So that gets us into chapter two. Now we get down to why everyone is gathered there. Blair, the biologist, wants to thaw the thing out. Norris, the physicist, thinks it's not safe. Dr. Copper agrees with Blair and he thinks it's safe. Norris thinks that there might be some microscopic life that would be harmful to humans. So Blair's argument is that this thing would be so different from us that any microorganisms that may live in it would be so different from our microorganisms that it would be absolutely no threat. Like worrying about catching some kind of tree rot or something. We're just too different, so it wouldn't affect our biology. Again, where they're making some bad choices, they have no idea what this thing is. And they're making these huge assumptions, like a lot of assumptions. You probably want to err on the side of caution when you're dealing with the very first extraterrestrial man has ever found, you know? Yes. And they clearly learned from the ship, blowing up the ship. Oh, we shouldn't make these assumptions. (laughs) But it goes back to the sin, which is kind of like Blair's got some vanity, I think. He wants to be the guy to learn about this thing first. And I think it's the vanity that's making him into a bad scientist. Yeah. Because science isn't the problem here. He's just not practicing it. Right. He might even have some wacky backstory that got him sent out here to begin with. Maybe he was exiled for making dog boys back on the mainland (laughs) or something. They're like, get him out to Antarctica where he can't hurt anything. (laughs) But this thing is not unlike anything on Earth. So we shouldn't. I mean, it's ridiculous for them to be assuming these things. Yeah, he describes it a bit. Three red eyes and that blue hair like crawling worms. Crawling. Damn, it's crawling there in the ice right now. I loved it when Norris says, If you can judge by the look on its face, it isn't human, so maybe you can't. It was annoyed when it froze. Annoyed, in fact, is just about as close an approximation of the way it felt as crazy, mad, insane hatred. (laughs) Aside from the blue hair and three eyes, the thing kind of has resting bitch face, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So now this is where things get interesting. Well, I've had bad dreams ever since I looked at those three red eyes. Nightmares. Dreaming the thing thawed out and came to life. That it wasn't dead or even wholly unconscious all those 20 million years. But just slowed. Waiting. Waiting. You'll dream too while that damned thing that Earth wouldn't own is dripping, dripping in the cosmos house tonight. Man, that sounds so Lovecraftian to me. Sure is. You know, there's a short story called The Things by Peter Watts, 
we can actually link out to it. It's available online. Mm-hmm. And it was nominated for all kinds of awards at Hugo in 2011. I think it won the Shirley Jackson Award for Best Short Story. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but basically it's the John Carpenter adaptation, but from the creature's perspective. Oh, okay. Here's the synopsis in the story. The thing is an alien with an innocent impulse to share with the human race its power of communion. And it's frightened, not to mention severely saddened reaction when they attack it. (laughs) Probably a fun one to check out after you've read the story. So they want to stick it in the cosmos house and let it thaw. It's a smaller shack that's used to monitor radiation and magnetic pulses. Uh, Conant, the cosmic ray specialist, is the guy who works there. It is kind of lucky for the world that they are dunces because... This metaphorical house they're in also restricts the creature, right? If it had been taken to the mainland for study, as we think it should have been, that thing would be out the house. It'd be everywhere. Right. right? Well, maybe if they kept The it- fact that they decide to deal with it here and thaw it out is the reason that it is unable to get somewhere else, I think. Could be. But then again, if they were careful and they, they kept it quarantined, it wouldn't have been able to get out. And they would have been monitoring it. They wouldn't just let some dude fall asleep next to the damn thing. <laughs> So, oh, don't, don't spoil it. All right, all right. So Commander Gary steps forward and he says that he thinks Blair is right and asks if anyone objects. Conant says that Blair should stand watch over the thing as it thaws. Then they decide to take the tarp off so that the crew can get a good look at it. It was face up there on the plain greasy planks of the table. The broken haft of the bronze ice axe was still buried in the queer skull. Three mad, hate-filled eyes blazed up with a living fire, bright as fresh-spilled blood, from a face ringed with a writhing, loathsome nest of worms, blue, mobile worms that crawled where hair should grow. All of the dudes just get out of there immediately after seeing this thing's face. Blair starts chipping away at the ice. That gets us into chapter three. Mm -hmm. He's chipping away the ice in the mess hall. Kinner's there, the cook, and he's complaining about it. He's like, why are you guys always doing stuff in the mess hall? Blair... You know, Blair, I can't stop thinking about Blair from Facts of Life. Just in general or only while you're reading the story? <laughs> when the story. Oh, when you see the word Blair. Okay. Yes, yes. I thought maybe you were confessing to something that's happening. Uh, no, no. You know, I no. Blair wasn't. No, I wasn't. I wasn't a Joe. Yeah, 2D for me. Thanks. <laughs> Confessing all these Facts of Life feelings. Glad, glad that started. Blair says that the mess hall is the only table big enough in camp to work on this thing. Conant, the cosmic ray guy who's going to have this thing in his lab, brings up that some animals like fish can freeze and then come back to life. Blair calls him a fool and says that only lower life forms do that. And this is a higher life form. Again, how the hell does he know what it is? He doesn't know what kind of life form it is at all. He's only got a visual on it. Well, in that 1950s adaptation, the scientists are similarly impulsive, but the military guys actually don't fall in line like this. They're not having it. They fight back. Because, of course, in the 50s, the scientist was always the bad guy, Mm. the one who wanted to tamper in in God's domain. I think that's because Hiroshima had just happened. Right. Seen the misery of atomic power. And so they were suspicious and skeptical of scientists. And ever since then, that character always shows up in this type of story. The the scientist who becomes sympathetic to the monster. Think of mm-hmm. like Paul Reiser's character in Aliens. There's always a, some bureaucrat or scientist that's there. Yeah, too. well, he's that's different because he's a bureaucrat and he's a money guy. Right. I think the the role of the scientist evolved into the the role of the bureaucrat. It kind of reflects what people don't appreciate about society at the time. So kind of calls him out and says, you know what? You don't know what, what you're talking about. Uh, and then Commander Gary starts to question the whole plan. But uh, Doc Copper, idiot, agrees with Blair. <laughs> he says, the thing's dead. He does ask, why are you thawing it out this way? And Blair says, the individual cells might show the characteristics that they had in life if it's properly thawed. A man's muscle cells live for many hours after he's died. Just because they live and a few things like hair and fingernail cells still live, you wouldn't accuse a corpse of being a zombie or something. 
All right. I might if its muscles were moving around. <laughs> but you don't know what this is. You also don't know what I might accuse a corpse of. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> the player goes on to say that just because it looks unhuman doesn't mean it's evil. And I'm like, whoa, where'd this come from? That's a strange segue. Well, Norris earlier was saying that it had resting bitch face, and that's clearly been bugging Blair. He, like, took it personally that they were talking about his expression. (laughs) How does he know? This is an alien. It may or may not have evolved from something totally separate from all life on Earth. Yeah. Assumptions one way or the other are still assumptions. He doesn't know if it's carbon-based or not. It's ridiculous. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it kind of points out that the thing could be super evil, roasting space kittens alive, oh, which makes Blair even more defensive. You don't know anything, he says. Just because its nature is different, you haven't any right to say it's necessarily evil. Mm-hmm. Right. And that goes for necessarily good as well. Keep going, Blair. Keep going. You're getting there. <laughs> you know what they say, to assume makes an ass out of raw protoplasmic material in order to fool you and me. <laughs> So Connor and Kinner take the thing to his lab. So chapter four is a short chapter. Connor is working at his desk. The thing is thawing nicely. It's late at night. He looks at the thing for a long time and then he goes back to work. He's deep in thought. He doesn't seem to notice the floorboards (laughs) squeak behind him. Still in deep thought, he doesn't notice that they squeak even closer. Now, in the 50s movie, this was the second moment that made me scream at the TV. The military isn't sure we should be thawing this thing, so they keep it in a cold room against the wishes of the scientist. But its resting bitch face is so intense that the the (laughs) grunt who's on overnight watch, he goes, I don't want to look at that. So he covers the block of ice with a blanket so he doesn't have to see it. And then he turns his back on it to do some paperwork. But he didn't realize it was an electric blanket, which is still on. I don't know how he wouldn't have realized that. Yeah, it's got a big cord attached to it. Yeah, it does. They even show the cord in the movie oh, like, dun, 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 look at the cord. And he also doesn't notice as the whole thing rapidly melts behind him. And it's like, surely there was a better option to get the thing out of the ice than that. Right. I think in that prequel, it may have just busted out of the ice. I don't remember. Wisely, the Carpenter movie doesn't even address that. It, it's, it skips it all together and starts in media race. All that stuff happened at yeah. another camp. So chapter five starts with Conant waking up Blair from a nightmare haunted dream. <gasps> Conant tells him the thing has escaped. Barkley and Doc Copper show up and the doctor's reply is, it wasn't earthly. I I guess earthly laws don't apply. It's like, no <laughs> shit, Sherlock. The clue is in the sentence. Conant says that he fell asleep and it must have slinked out. Then he says, it's a wonder it didn't eat me, which Blair says, maybe it did. Uh, we'll have to find it. So does Blair already understand that it can assimilate things? Well, yeah, they, they had the dreams that the thing would come come to life so you know i think they understand what's going on with it because it has some kind of psychic abilities they at least have conceived of it from just listening in on its thoughts that's crazy so now commander gary shows up to see what's going on conant says that he didn't carry it off in his arms and the last he saw of it it had green ooze coming out of its head where the axe went in what does that mean conant says he's just saying he's not playing a joke on him or oh oh i see i see you know he didn't pick it up and carry it away as they're talking there's a shrill howl that's coming from where the dogs are kept and they get armed and they head down there and the dogs have broken their chains. McReady shows up and so does Pomroy, the guy who takes care of the cows. Yes. And then I'm like, the cows? They have cows? Well, the milkman doesn't deliver to the Antarctic. You got to bring your own supply. But then don't they have to bring food for the cows? Isn't there a lot of food you have to bring for cows? What do you have against cows? <laughs> anyway, Conant stops at the bend in the corridor and he starts shooting, unloads his gun and then he drops it. The thing attacks Conant, and he slams it in what you would call its head with his ice axe. 
And then the thing is being attacked by the dogs and it's being all tore up. Mm-hmm. It says the red eyes blazed with unearthly hatred and unearthly unkillable vitality. So Barkley shoots a fire extinguisher in the thing's face and the McReady gets a blowtorch that's normally used to melt ice on the plane. It says one of the giant blowtorches used in warming the plane's engines was in his bronzed hand. <laughs> so those, those two little baby shoes are holding the, the, the muzzle of it. Uh, yeah, it shoots out a three-foot lance of blue-hot flame. So McReady tells Barkley to get a power cable. Yeah, he wants to electrocute it as well, and that's how they killed the, the creature in the 50s movie. Was that's right. Doing that. The dogs kept the thing at bay, and then McReady says, power it up, and the dogs seem to intuitively know what's up, and they move away as McReady shoves the cable at the thing and electrocutes it. It says, the dogs beyond sense the plan with an almost telepathic intelligence of trained huskies. Now, is that a clue? It could be a clue, or this, or he just goes, everybody understands that huskies have telepathy, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the electric shock kills it as the dogs jump on it and rip it apart. Yes. Gets us into chapter six. We're in the mess hall again. Gary's addressing everyone. Some guys are fixing up wounded dogs. He explains that Charnock, the dog lead, is dead. And Blair wants to examine the burned up body some more, but Gary asks him to speak. Blair says that what was frozen might not have been the thing's true form. It is a shapeshifter. He thinks from looking at the tissue samples that it's from a warmer planet. And when it thawed out, it got to Charnook, started to digest him and and turn into him. The dogs turned on it when it was starting to happen. Yeah. The thing can mimic any other creature on a cellular level. It looks identical, the cells, but the nucleus of the cell holds the true creature. Even looking through a microscope, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference of the cells. And that's the real disturbing element of this story. Uh, The root of this horror is that you can't find it, but it could be anything. And that's what's missing from the 50s version, as you said. In this story, there isn't just a monster. In the 50s movie, they've just got a monster. But, I mean, it's still kind of cool. It even pulls some stuff from Mountains of Madness in that the monster is constructed like a vegetable. Mm -hmm. You know, he's sort of like a big carrot man, which was a characteristic of the Elder Things, right? They were part vegetable and also were frozen and came back to life. Mm -hmm. So I think in that movie, it shows how an alien visitor could be completely inhuman from what we suspect. But... The core of this story is the paranoia, mm. you know, that people turning on each other. And that's much more powerful than there simply being, a, you know, a monster stalking them. Because it, yeah. in this story, we're all the monster, maybe. So good. So Barkley asks Blair what he thinks the creature is up to. And Blair says to take over the world. And again, really <laughs> jumping to conclusions. Blair explains that it could become the population of the Earth. He says it, that the creature, it weighed 85 pounds. Charnook weighed about 90 it would have become Chernook and then had 85 pounds left to become O-Jack, for instance, or Chernook. It could imitate anything, that is, become anything. If it had reached the Antarctic Sea, it could have become a seal, maybe two seals. They might have attacked a killer whale and become either killers or a herd of seals. Or maybe it would have caught an albatross or a skuagul or flown to South America. Norse cursed softly, and every time it digested something and imitated it, it would have its original bulk left to start again. Lord, it might become a female eagle, go back, build a nest, and lay eggs. Yeesh. Again, possible, but you're getting into DNA with reproduction. So who knows if this thing actually duplicates DNA or just mimics cells. They don't know how it works, and they just love to speculate. Well, speculation is, you know, the first symptom of fear. <laughs> Whenever we hear a noise outside, Heather will say, Do you, is, is somebody coming in here to kill us? And she just goes right there. <laughs> no, I think someone's just checking their mail. Okay. Uh, Blair says, as he's giggling, that it's going to imitate us. 
The dogs can't get out of the Antarctic, not on their own. Only humans can do that. Giggling, huh? Looks like Blair's getting a little space madness. Blair is going nuts, and then he says that he's opened Pandora's box, but he's fixed it. He brags about smashing every Magneto. No plane can fly. He's trapped them there. The pilot, Van Wall, runs out to see if what he said is true, and Doc Copper gives Blair some morphine and knocks him out. But they're not entirely against this plan of cutting themselves off. It seems they understand they need to quarantine, even themselves. Mm -hmm. When Van Wall comes back, he says, I didn't think a biologist would do a thing like that thoroughly. He missed the spare magnetos in the second cache. It's all right. I smashed them. He agrees. It's probably the smart thing to do. McReady says it may be like an infectious disease. Everything they drink, any of its blood could be infected. Copper thinks there might be a way to test for it. Copper shook his head. Blair missed something. Imitate it may, but it has, to a certain extent, its own body chemistry, its own metabolism. If it didn't, it would become a dog, and be a dog, and nothing more. It has to be an imitation dog, therefore you can detect it by serum tests. And its chemistry, since it comes from another world, must be so wholly radically different that a few cells, such as gained by drops of blood, would be treated as disease germs by the dog, or human body. Blood? Would one of those imitations bleed? Norris demanded. Surely. Nothing mystic about blood. Muscle is about 90% water. Blood differs only in having a couple percent more water and less connective tissue. They bleed all right, Copper assured him. Blair sat up in his bunk suddenly. Connet. Where's Connet? The physicist moved over toward the little biologist. Here I am. What do you want? Are you? giggled Blair. He lapsed back into the bunk, contorted with silent laughter. Conant looked at him blankly. Huh? Am I what? Are you there? Blair burst into gales of laughter. (laughs) Are you, Conant? The beast wanted to be a man, not a dog. (laughs) Oh! And that is a very good place to stop for this week. The thing may or may not still be loose, and these guys are going to find out when we come back. Thanks to Andrew Lehman once again for reading for us. Yes, uh, thank you, Andrew. You did such a great job. And hey, everybody, please pick up Rats in the Walls. It's over there at CthulhuLives.org. It's good stuff. We'll be back next week. Please have a wonderful Christmas or other chosen holiday, solstice, Hanukkah. Maybe light a fire so that Santa doesn't come down your chimney. We're not sure if he's really Santa. (laughs) Stay safe. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!